Well, last time in Matthew 13, we looked at uh, verses 44 through 58, and we looked at the parable of the hidden treasure, uh, par- the parable of the pearl of great price, and um, we see that Jesus is this, this pearl, this treasure, that a person sells everything they have to go and purchase it. And I asked you the question of examining yourself. Do you have the same concept that Paul has in Philippians 3, 7, 3, that he considers all of it dung uh, compared to knowing Christ and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings? And hopefully you examine yourself thoroughly about that. Um, and then we saw uh, some of this, the, uh, the parable of Dragon, and we saw some of the suffering that Jesus went through and how uh, in his own hometown, and what did they want to do to him in his own hometown? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine growing up with the same people? It'd be like, you know, all the families here are not being Christians, and then one raising up and becoming a Christian and coming back and us wanting to throw them off the cliff somewhere. You, you, you grew up around these people. You just didn't leave this household to start his ministry. He was 30 years old. So he knew these people for 30 years. And uh, he endured suffering from them. Uh, because they didn't consider him the son of God. They considered him the carpenter's son. And that was it. That was it. Okay, so today, uh, it's been a few weeks. We're going to go to Matthew 14 and continue on here. We're going to go through verse 21. And let's go ahead and, and start reading. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, I do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all, they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Okay, I gave you that sheet today uh, because there's lots of Herods in the Bible. 
And I didn't want any confusion uh, for you when you see these words Herod, so you can kind of understand. This is a good chart that breaks it down. It's not my chart. It's a chart I got off a, a commentary I have, and I printed it off my computer. Uh, and it can kind of give you an idea. Herod the Great, one at the top there, uh, he was the one who put the children to death after Jesus was born. Okay? And uh, he was the king of all of Palestine. And he had lots of sons. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now, they weren't all from the same mothers, but he had seven sons. And you see, the first three sons didn't have any rulership in any of his kingdom. Okay? Um, but we see some of the other sons did. Uh, Herod Antipas, which is the one we're talking about here. That's the one third from the right here. Herod Ant- in bold letters, Herod Antipas. He was a tetrarch. And tetrarch means a fourth. He reigned over a fourth of his father's kingdom. Okay? Um, and then Herod Philip II, all the way to the right. He ruled away a fourth of the kingdom. And then Herod Archelaus ruled over the, the other half of the kingdom. Okay? Uh, so that's what you see here. Uh, and then his, his third son, Herod Aristobulus, that you see here, is not in bold, third from the left. He had a son uh, named Herod Agrippa, uh, a son named Herod of Calchas, and he had a daughter named Herodias. I'm going to see here in a moment that Herodias, uh, who we're going to talk about here, was actually married to her uncle, Herod Philip I. Now, if you go back to the Levitical laws uh, concerning who you can marry, who you can't marry, there's no rule against marrying your niece or your nephew. So it wasn't unlawful to do that. Okay? And then Herod Antipas, the brother, he's the one who actually marries Herod, the Philip the First, Herod Philip I's former wife, Herodias, and they divorced and married uh, each other. So he married his niece as well. So she married two of her, marrying two of her uncles, okay? Which, you know, in our, in our day, it would seem really dysfunctional, okay? I don't know how normal this was back then, uh, but it wasn't condemned by Levitical laws, uh, so it was lawful to do that. And uh, it, there's quite a bit of chance that they were half-brothers anyway. They weren't even full-brothers. They weren't from the same mother, just from the same father, okay? Sure. Now, they were Jew, they were Jew, uh, but they really didn't have any kind of authority because who was really over top of the Jews? Romans. And so we'll see here this, this proverbial statement Herod uses, of, I'll give up the half of my kingdom. We'll see here in one of the other Gospels, he really couldn't give anything away. Uh, just a proverbial saying he was saying, using. Uh, so let's go back into, the, just with that in mind, let's go back to, and you can also see the third column down, or third section down here, Hitler, the second, Drusilla, Bernice, these are also some of the people that Paul had interaction with, okay? And they also killed some of the apostles. Um, actually, Herod the first killed James the apostle and imprisoned Peter, but the other ones are, had interaction with Paul. And you might remember them from, from the book of Acts. Okay, so Herod the Tetrarch is Herod Antipas on our list here. Heard the report about Jesus, and he had this, this superstitious thing going on that he thought John the Baptist had risen from the dead in the form of Jesus, and is coming basically to torment him now. Now, how much older was Jesus than John the Baptist? Right, okay. So how, what was the age difference there? Six months, that's right. That's right, we, we can go to the Gospel of Luke and see that for ourselves. And um, so how could have Jesus risen from the dead when John the Baptist just died recently? How could he rise from the dead and be in the form of Jesus when Jesus has been around for over 30 years now? So, but he had this superstitious thing going on. And, and what do you think his problem probably was? Why do you think he was coming to these conclusions? Do you think his conscience was bothering him a little bit? 
I mean, he just put a prophet to death. And the reason he put him to death was a very immoral reason, if you ask me. And uh, we know that from, uh, from Luke chapter 9 and verse 9, that he wanted to see Jesus. Jesus intrigued Herod, Antipas. He wanted to see what he was like. And at the end of Jesus' life, in Luke 23, verses 6 through 12, Herod finally meets Jesus. And he's disappointed. Because Jesus isn't some sideshow who's doing miracles for him, who's chosen these cool tricks he can do. Jesus remains silent and says nothing to him. Won't even answer his questions. So they mocked him and ridiculed <coughs> Jesus. And you see that once again in Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12. But Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now, this verse 2, once go back to verse 2 for a second, these powers are at work in him. Do you realize that John the Baptist performed, performed no miracles at all? But Jesus did. Yeah, he still concluded, because of his, probably because of his conscience and the superstition that he had, that Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead. So Herodias was his brother, Philip's wife, and the niece of both of them. And we don't have any kind of history in the scripture as to what happened in the situation. Uh, from Josephus' uh, writings, we find out they were divorced. Uh, and they divorced simply because, well, this is what Josephus says, that um, Philip... Uh, Herod Antipas' uh, brother was in Rome, and Her uh, uh, Herod Antipas went to Rome at one point in time, and they had uh, some kind of an affair, him and Herodias. And so that prompted Herodias to divorce her husband, and it prompted Herod Antipas to divorce his wife. And according to Josephus, divorcing his, Herod's, Herod divorcing his wife caused a lot of problems for him, because he actually married the daughter of a king of another country. And that king came and fought against him, and it it dwindled his military down so badly he never recovered from it. Um, but we don't know what kind of divorce it was, what the reason, I mean, obviously there was adultery involved there. Um, but according to uh, Levitical law, the reason why John is coming against him, it says in verse 4, it is not lawful for you to have her. He's not mentioning anything about divorce or anything like that. It's because in Levitical law, you're not allowed to marry uh, your brother's wife. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 16. Leviticus 18 and verse 16. Now the one exception to, to marrying uh, in Levitical law to marrying your uh, brother's wife is if he dies and they are childless, you're actually obligated to marry her. Now this is Levitical law here, Jewish law, not the laws we're to abide by. But John is in that context. He's talking to Jews under Levitical law. And it says in, in Leviticus 18 and verse 16, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Okay? So you shouldn't be having any kind of relations. And it's not mentioning adultery here. So I think, I think the, the assumption we can say here, if, if it was just adultery, he can just say, well, you shouldn't have an adulterous relationship. That, that would cover everything. But he's saying, you should not uncover your, your brother's wife's nakedness. So it's, it's, if it was just adultery... Uh, he could have covered with just the same one thing. You should not commit adultery. And that would cover it. Okay? Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 21. And this talks about the punishments here. And uh, there's another reason why I believe it's not referring to adultery. In Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, it says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, 
he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and adulteress shall be surely put to death. Okay, so uh, we see that there, but let's look at the punishment for marrying your brother's wife in verse 21. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So there's two different punishments here. There's one for adultery and one for taking your brother's wife. So even if your brother um, were to divorce her legally, according to Levitical law, Deuteronomy chapter 24 is what comes to mind, verses 1 through 4, if you want to look it up for yourself. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 talks about divorce in the Levitical law. Uh, even if they did divorce properly, you are not allowed to take your brother's wife as your own. And John was coming against that because he lived in the context of Levitical law. And uh, many people who believe in the idea that um, this is coming against divorce and remarriage at all, why the, the former spouse is still alive, they're mistaken. If you go back to Levitical law. Okay, so they're using it as a proof text, but I don't think it's a good proof text for them. Okay? Well, no, I, what, the point I'm making is they're living Levitical law. And so people who think that divorce and remarriage is not allowed unless the first spouse dies first, there's never any case that's allowed at all, they'll use as a proof text and say, look, this is proving. John is saying you can't marry her because the former spouse is still alive. But I don't think that's what he's coming against at all here. Because, you know, the, the, the laws back here, adultery, they would have been stoned to death for their crimes. But they weren't stoned to death. He was just calling it immoral because the Levitical law says you should not have your brother's wife. Okay? And, um, but that's not the only reason John the Baptist rebuked them. If you go to Luke chapter 3, and verses 19 through 20, this is going back to when Jesus, uh, John the Baptist was originally imprisoned, imprisoned by Herod. It says in Luke 3, verse 19, it says, But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him, talking about John the Baptist in context here, concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all of the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut, shut up John in prison. So he wasn't just rebuked for that. I mean, that was probably one of the main things that really infuriated him about that's what brought him to bring him, put him in prison and wanted to actually, he wanted to put him to death for it. But he bricked him for all his evils. Not just that, but for all his evils that he was doing. We'll see some of his evils here in this passage. And possibly he was, you know, I'm sure he was doing these things before this passage, so John the Baptist probably rebuked him for these things as well. Um, so it's not lawful for you to have her. And although... Uh, he wanted to put John the Baptist to death. He feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. So now here we have a cowardly murderer. Someone who wants to murder John the Baptist in his heart, but he's also a coward. Because he won't do it. Why? Because he fears the people. So he's a coward and he's a murderer in his heart. Uh, but now we see the opportunity presents itself. And um, we know from other the other accounts of this, that Herodotus was behind this whole thing. So when Herod's birthday was celebrated, and by the way, Jews didn't celebrate birthdays, so Herod is becoming somewhat pagan in this sense at this point in time. I'm not saying it's pagan to celebrate birthdays. You're allowed to celebrate birthdays if you want to, but I'm saying at that point in time, the Jews didn't celebrate these kind of things. So he was turning in that direction in their context. The daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased her. Now this is one of his daughters. 
This was Herodias' daughter through his brother, Philip. So now he's lusting after his niece. Okay? He's, 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 well, I guess it's the daughter of his niece, so technically I guess it's not really his niece. It's the niece because it's the daughter of his brother. But then again, it's the niece of his niece, so it's lots of confusion going on as of what she is he is. But he's lusting after her. She's dancing before him. And not only was he lusting after her, but those who are with him, according to Mark 6.22, were lusting after her as well. And they were all pleased by the way she was dancing before them. And when you're in this state of sin, you lack right judgment. You do all kinds of stupid things when, you lack, when you're in these kind of sins. And so he said, I, I, he, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now we see from, uh, from Mark's account of this in Mark 6.23 that he promised her up to half the kingdom. Okay? And if you were to go to Esther, you'd see it's the same thing that the king promised Esther. Okay? And this is basically saying, whatever I have is yours. And, of course, they're pleased for different reasons. King Esther had a, king had a good reason to give it to Esther because he's pleased with her as his wife. And he loved her. But here we have King Herod saying these things, Tetrarch Herod saying these things because of lust, because of sin, not because of genuine love. And uh, verse 7, what, what, what pro- other problem do you see besides lust? What is he doing in verse 7 that he shouldn't be doing? Taking an oath. He's involved in all kinds of sin here. He's a murderer with John the Baptist. He's a coward because he won't kill him because he's afraid of the people. He's, he's lustful, and now he's taking, making oaths because he just lost it after this, this girl. So she had been prompted by her mother said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And if you look at the other passages here, uh, where it, in Mark, it says, at once, immediately. I want it done now, because Herodias, knowing her husband, knows he might flail in the wind and might become cowardly again and decide to do it again. So he does it right away. And she wants to head in the platter for what reason? For proof. For evidence that's been done. I want to know. And, and she, she has it out for him. She was, in Mark, it talks about this, and it says that she... Uh, held it against him. And so she became bitter in her heart in Mark 6, uh, 6, 19, Herodias, held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. She had no power to kill him. So she manipulated her husband, brought her own daughter, used her daughter's instrument to bring before her husband, had her, him lust after her because he knew, she knew her husband. She knew she wooed him in with lust, and she knew it would work with him. And so she had bitterness and anger in her heart and murder in her heart towards John the Baptist, and she had was using her daughter as an instrument. How wicked is that? It reminds me of these, these people who put their, their children on display of these pageants. And they bring their, their children to beaches, let them dress in bikinis, and it's like, you know, what are you doing here with your children? And, and at pageants, they're, whether lust is in their heart or not, they're doing these things because they want their children to be famous and they want to make lots of money off of them. How wicked is that? Yes, it is a very subtle form of prostitution, and it may lead to that, not in a sense where they're getting paid later on, but they're involved in fornication and all kinds of wickedness later on. That's what it's going to lead to for these young people. Even, even uh, children, who, we're talking about boys now, sports stars, I'm like, they're going to go big and make lots of money off of them. It's turning your children over for money. But children are a precious thing, and we're to lead them and guide them and seek what God's will is for them, not what our fleshly sinful will is for them. 
but we see her using her, her own child because of her, her, her wickedness and her anger and her bitterness inside and her murder in her heart, it led her to do this. And so his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And then John the Baptist's disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Now, we don't know if they ever got the head back, but they took the body at least, we know that. And they went and buried it. And now when Jesus heard this, I, I imagine Jesus was probably, you know, maybe a little bit sad about this. I mean, he knew what was going to happen, but he's pro- that doesn't mean he's not sad about it. You know, Jesus, Jesus knew that his own disciple, Judas, would betray him, but it says that he, he wept over it, that he was distraught over it, even though he knew it was going to happen. And he talked about it over and over again. And... Uh, now, it says he, went, he departed to a secret place by himself, a deserted place by himself. He didn't just go by himself. You see from Luke 9 and Mark 6 that he took his disciples with him. If that disciple had just come back from preaching themselves, and they were telling him all the things they had done, he said, well, come to a deserted place and get some rest. What's a good principle for us preachers? Sometimes we can overdo it. You know, out of our zeal, good things, out of our zeal for the kingdom of God and our zeal for the lost, we can overstretch ourselves. And it's good sometimes to get some rest. It's good sometimes to go to a deserted place and just be alone with your closest people, his disciples for him. Maybe for you it would be your closest family or just your church family. But to be alone and just rest and recuperate. That's good. We need to take that principle to heart. But when the multitudes heard about this, they, they followed him on foot from the stage and eventually they got to him. You know, following on foot around the lake is a lot slower than going straight across the lake. So it, they would have had some time to themselves. With the disciples, and this, and we know from the other, uh, from John six, that this was in Bethsaida, and he was on top of a mountain. They're on some mountain in Bethsaida. Okay, so we get the other details from the other, the other passages that talk about this. So they followed him, and when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and healed their sick. Now we see in Mark six thirty four. Let's turn there for a second. I'm going to read it. Uh, it gives a little more detail as to how his compassion is felt. The, great compassion he had for them, what his action was after he felt this compassion. It wasn't just to heal, which is what some social gospel people would purport these days, that, you know, you see people who are distraught and you want to have compassion, let's just give them food, let's give them, food, uh, you know, clothing on their back, but that's it. If an open-air preacher comes along and wants to come alongside them and preach the gospel to these homeless people, they say, no, we don't, we don't do that kind of stuff here. We're just going to give them food and give them clothes on their back and give them a pat off them back and say, go off to hell. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't do that kind of stuff. Okay? So in verse 34 we see, And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they, they were like sheep not having a shepherd. Now who was supposed to be the shepherd of these sheep? The leaders of Israel. But they weren't true shepherds. They were false shepherds. They didn't come in through the door of the sheep pen. They went over top. They didn't want to come in through Jesus. So they were thieves and robbers, Jesus called them. They weren't true shepherds. And remember we looked at this uh, characteristic of a good shepherd and a bad shepherd from back in, in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, where he was moved with compassion for them then. They were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And some of the characters I gave you of a good shepherd is that they protect, they guide, they discipline, they sacrifice. But characters of bad shepherds, they're selfish, they're proud, 
They're greedy and they're cowards. And that's the characters you see of these shepherds of Israel. They weren't shepherding the flock. And so Jesus was moved with compassion because they were sheep not having a shepherd. No wonder why they were following him. They had no other shepherd to follow. They were scattered abroad in, in that sense. But what was his response to this? Besides what Matthew said, he healed them. What did he do to them? He began to teach them many things. And we see from, we see from Luke chapter 9 and verse 11 that he taught them the kingdom of God. He taught them many things. He didn't just heal them. I'll heal you, here you go, give you some food, we're going to feed you here, 5,000 people plus men plus women and children, we're going to feed you, and then said, you home. No, he taught them. Yes, he did meet their physical need. But he taught them. Because that was the most important thing for them. That was what's going to lead them in the end. So he taught them, he healed their sick. Uh, when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place. And the hour is already late. Send them all twos away that they may go into the village and buy themselves food. And this is an interesting response from Jesus here. They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Wow. Now, put yourself in their position. You have 11 disciples here. Okay. And if we were to go to John's account in John 6, you'd, you'd find more details that uh, Jesus actually asked Philip the question. You know, and he did it so he could test them because he already knew what he was going to do. And uh, which is really, uh, you know, let's just go to that for a second. John six. Uh, this is this is another good proof text, I think, to, that comes against the doctrine of open theism. Because Jesus knew what he would do already before he appeared to question. Yet he was testing him. And oftentimes, open theists will go to the, the account of Abraham and his son. And Jesus and God said, I, I want him to do this so I can see test and see what's in your heart. But just because God's going to test someone does not mean he does not know what they're going to do or what he's going to do. And Jesus says those very things here. He says in verse 5 in John 6, they lift up his eyes and see a great multitude coming to him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus knew what he was going to do. But you're going to see what he's going to do is involves a lot of people's free will here. It's not just Jesus doing it himself. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little but they're not just going to have a little. We're going to see they're going to be satisfied here in a minute. John 6, 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? So we see Jesus knew Andrew would bring this little lad to him, this young boy who had his lunch, basically. <laughs> I mean, it may be enough to feed his own family. If that's what he, he had it for. But it wasn't enough to feed 5,000 men plus women and children, probably fifteen to 20,000 people total. But Andrew had the faith. He said, well, this is what we have, Lord. But how far will this go? And so we have to deal with this because Jesus said he was testing them. But he knew what he would do already, which is a problem for open theists because they say that when, Jesus, when God was testing people in the Old Testament, that he was, didn't really know it was in their heart. He wasn't sure, exactly sure, certain how they were to respond. That's what they'll say about the test of Abraham with his son Isaac. And so we, we see a legitimate answer here to that objection. But once again, we see a lad here bringing his food. We see Andrew having a little bit of faith. And then Jesus made him sat down. Let's go back to Matthew. And we see from other gospels that he sat him down in groups of 50. 
That's probably how they can tell it's 5,000 men plus women and children because they had groups of 50 there and they could tell by counting 50s. I mean, how many 50s are in 5,000? 100. Yeah, so the men probably sat together, the women and children probably sat together and they counted the groups of men and there's 50 groups, there's 100 groups of men there, there's at least 5,000 people. Men plus women and children. And so, there's something here that Jesus is demanding the impossible. Because can the disciples meet this crowd's need? Do they have the means to take care of this crowd? Well, they don't. And so oftentimes, I would encourage you, if God speaks to your heart to do something impossible, remember, what is impossible with man is not impossible with God. God may call you to do the impossible. But if you, like the lad, bring what you have. If you, like Andrew, have that mustard seed of faith and say, Lord, what can I do with so little? He will take the little and make it a lot. He will take the little and make it a lot. So no matter how impossible your situation may seem now or in the future, if God calls you to something, you need to lay aside your understanding of things and lean on His understanding of things. And trust in him. Of course, you have to know for sure he's speaking to him. I mean, they, they have just speaking to him in person. There's no doubt that he's speaking to him then. But you have to know for certain that God's speaking to your heart about it. But if God speaks to your heart about something that you think is impossible, put your worldly thinking aside and trust God. Because nothing's impossible for him. And if God calls you to do something, he will provide what you need to accomplish what he calls you to do. It's really that simple. No matter if you only have some loaves of bread and a couple of fish. God can make it so that when it's all over, everyone had their fill. The Greek word there in verse 20 is they all were satisfied. And yet how many fragments were taken up? Twelve baskets. They didn't start out with that much. And they had twelve baskets left over when it was all said and done. And so when it comes to the impossible, friends, we must deal with God and what he's calling us to. And we can't put it aside because our worldly wisdom, our natural wisdom says don't do it. I mean, I read biography after biography. I'm reading Hudson Taylor right now. I just got one about Duncan Campbell. And these men did the impossible, not because they were some special men. You know, oftentimes people say, well, he was a great man of God. No, no, he was a man of a great God. Not a, a great man of God. We're all just, we're just men of God. But what it comes down to is how much you're going to trust in God's greatness. Not how great you are, or how men will praise you, but how men will praise your God, because the things you did can't be attributed to you. They can only be attributed to God. And then only He will get the glory. Do you think any of the people in this crowd, after they saw this, said, man, these disciples, they really prepared for us. They, they really prepared for 5,000 men plus one children to come here so they could feed us. Man, they're really good preparers. They're really good planners. Do you think that was the response of the crowd? Well, let's look at the response of the crowd. Let's go to John 6 and see what they said. John 6 and verse 14.
Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, man, these disciples are really good planners. This is truly the prophet who's come into the world. They gave glory to God. They didn't give glory to Andrew. They didn't give glory to the little lad. They didn't give glory to all the other apostles who were passing it out with their baskets or took the fragments of the door. They gave glory to Jesus. Therefore, when he perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. That's not what he came for. Yeah, he, he, he came for Isaiah 53 talked about. To save us from a worse enemy than Rome, or a worse enemy than even the Pharisees or Sadducees. Our sin. If he didn't do that, we have no hope. We do no good for him to set up his kingdom on earth. And, and once again, just touching on one more thing here. There are 5,000 men plus women and children. Do you think Jesus was whispering to them when he was teaching them? No. Do you think he, did he have a bullhorn? No. Did he have a building to bounce his voice off of? No. So he's preaching to fit, probably, fit, I mean, I'm just guessing here, probably 15,000 people. Maybe just one woman and one child per man that's out there. Just average. 15,000 people. So these people, man, why are you yelling at us in the open air? Well, you're just, there's 100 people here. I want everyone to hear. I'm just speaking to 100 I mean, obviously I don't think Jesus looked red-faced. He probably didn't have his veins popping out of his forehead when he was preaching, but he was preaching loudly. He wanted all of them to hear because they were sheep without a shepherd, and he was trying to shepherd them into the truth, into his sheep pen. And they must come through the door to come into his sheep pen. Yes? I imagine everyone was patiently quiet, intently listening to what he was saying as well. Yeah. Instead of having chatter amongst each other and not paying attention and... And something else is going on, like we see on college campuses. Right. Most of them could care less what we actually have to say, right. and they're trying to cause distraction. Uh, but then, you know, uh, everyone was intently listening to what he had to say, so that could have part of it too. But yeah, he was definitely not whispering to them. Right. Right. Yeah, you read you read stories about people like John Wesley and George Whitfield, how they're preaching to about that many people or more. And I read an account from. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, that when George Whitfield was preaching in Pennsylvania one time, that he could hear him like a mile away. And that's supernatural there. That's, that's not natural. Um, there's no man alive who by his natural voice can be heard a mile away. And this is field preaching now. No buildings. No, no uh, bullhorns. You know, and so God either supernaturally opened the ears of those people, or he supernaturally gave with the voice to preach. And so, you know, I was looking to preach. That's one thing I pray for, you know, that we can, so our voices can go out and, yes, beyond the range. God can do it. All right, questions, uh, objections, things to add? Yes, brother? Um, I understand that, um, John the Baptist and Herod, that's all under the old covenant. Mm -hmm. Now we're under the new covenant. So yep. there are some differences when you look at old covenant and new covenant. Sure. Uh, now you did say in verse 7 uh, that he gave an oath, and then for him, under the old covenant, that would be a sin under the old covenant. I don't know if that's in the old covenant. I thought that the not giving an oath was something that Jesus 
gave us in the new covenant. That sure. That's, that's the difference. So is there something in the old covenant that, that would say that was a sin? You know, I don't know. That's a good point. I have to look into that. I was going on what you just said in Sermon on the Mount. Right. Yeah. That would be new covenant. Yeah. Most yeah. likely. And then another thing I wanted just to add, uh, I think this is really very interesting. Well, keep in mind, though, just to touch that one more time, that's what I just thought of. Keep in mind, Jesus is still preaching to people who are under the old covenant. So, right. Uh, his his laws apply to them too. What he says applies to them. Uh, the only excuse Herod might have had at that point is, is not knowing what Jesus said. Maybe he didn't hear what Jesus said. But uh, you know, Jesus is preaching people under the old. He's preaching to the Jewish people in their context too. So I, I don't think when he, I don't think that when he's preaching about these things, he's necessarily changing that. You know, but. Uh, you know, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't change for Herod because Jesus, Jesus already preached it in Matthew 5. I don't think it changes for Herod if he heard him say it. But, you know, I don't know. The Old Testament might say something about Osama. Maybe not. I don't, I don't really know at this point. That's a good point. Something to bring up. Uh, but, yeah, uh, something I just want to add is in 2 Kings chapter 4, okay. uh, starting at verse 42, uh, it actually shows uh, Elisha doing a lesser, similar uh, miracle, you know, with you know, the power of God that what Jesus did. I thought that's pretty interesting. Uh, where it says that uh, he fed a hundred men mm-hmm. on uh, twenty loaves, and when he gave the food to uh, the servant, the servant said, "What shall I set this before one hundred men?" He said again, "Give it to the people that they may eat." For thus says the Lord, "They shall eat and have some left over." Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a similar miracle, but to a much lesser degree. Yeah. I, I thought that was just kind of interesting. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, thanks for that. interesting because John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Right. And Elijah's coming Elisha back. Came, Elisha came after. Elisha performed the miracles. Right. And Elijah didn't perform miracles, did he? Elijah? Yeah, he was, wasn't he the one that, that uh, called on fire from heaven? Fire right. Double portion. Right. 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 So I was thinking how, you know, Elisha, I wonder if that's like a picture there. Hmm. Christ performed, no one performed more miracles than, than Messiah. Elijah, John the Baptist comes before, prepares the way for No miracles, Messiah, right. You know, so, but it's interesting. He was saying John the Baptist didn't perform any miracles. No. Not at all. And uh, it's interesting. Well, baptizing Jesus, that, that was his obligation as Jesus instructed him. But the miracle happened there, not that he caused it or something like that. No, he probably had no idea it was going to happen. Yeah. You know, a miracle is something that a person causes to happen, of course, under the power of God, but better when calling it to happen. So, but when Elijah comes a second time, he'll perform plenty of miracles, mm-hmm. plenty of signs and, and wonders. That wicked won't like these ones, though. They won't like these ones. Yeah, they'll they'll cheer and make, they'll make a holiday out of their death. That's what it says. They'll give gifts to each other. So it's like another Christmas. And that's right, because Elijah did call the fire down, and uh, the second time, but the false prophet said the power to call down fire also. Right. Well, yeah, the. Elijah, the, the actual Elijah is going to come in the first three and a half years. But then the false Elijah is going to rise up at the midpoint. And they're going to reject the first Elijah. And I'm wondering if, I wonder if they'll reject him because he died. Because 
that's that's probably one of the reasons they reject Jesus because he died on the cross. You know, Messiah's not going to die on the cross. How could our Messiah die? And that's one of the reasons they reject Elijah. And then this next one will come along and say, "I'm Elijah," and they're actually going to receive and be deceived. Elijah will be deceived by this the second Elijah, the, the false prophet, who's yeah, who's claiming to be Elijah. So. Yeah, another thing that uh, happened uh, during Elijah's time was that it stopped raining. Right. And the, uh, the world, you know, the drought, uh, which may have just been in that region of the earth at that time, but whenever he comes back, it's going to be a worldwide drought for three and a half years. How right. How long was it for the first time? Uh, I don't know, was it the same period of time? I think it was. Three and a half years also? I think so. Or was it seven years? I know, he, yeah. I know he prayed seven times, right. and he kept sending the guy out to see if he sees any clouds in the sky, right. and he came back, said no, then right. at the seventh time he saw a small cloud, he said, now tell the nation of Israel that there's a storm coming. Right. And, uh, that's interesting, all the pictures in the old men. Right. There was a drought, at least in the, in the land, in the land of Israel at that time, uh, that Elijah uh, was part of that. Right. Yeah, it shows you uh, God's love for a Jewish people because He's showing them over and over again. This is me. This is me. This is me. And they just reject, reject, reject for the most part. Well, I, I think, but I think that's referring to uh, his calling. That's what he's referring to, I think, there. Greatest man in Burma, but the least of these is greater than he. Right, so he's got the greatest, he had the greatest calling because he was the forerunner for Christ. You know, he got the herald of Christ coming. I think, that's what I think that's what it's referring to. There, because... Uh, um... That's a good question. We talked about this before, I think, where whether John the Baptist, uh, you know, he was filled with the, the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. You know, he had a, uh, whether he really had free will. I mean, obviously, in your mother's womb, you don't have free will. You don't even know what's going on at that point. And, uh, and then how he doubted in prison. You know, some people would say that he didn't really have uh, free will until he got into prison. That's why he doubted. I don't know if I would I would agree with that, but. Um, I think we can be greater than him in the sense that uh, we get to preach the gospel, people get saved, uh, we get be filled with the Holy Spirit by choice, not by birth. And um, there's one other reason too I was thinking of. Oh, I can't remember. Well, I was going to say, First uh, Kings chapter 17, starting in verse one, is mm -hmm. talking about the drought. Right. He didn't say how long at that point. Yeah, it just says that uh, there will be uh, not dew nor rain these years except at my word. So, um, and then in verse 41 of 1 Kings 18 is where it ends. Yeah. Yeah. 
Luke 4.25. Three years and six months. Yep. Luke 4.25. Yep. Yeah, this, this is just has a column, center column reference. If you want a really good reference Bible, get a Thompson Chain reference Bible. That's really exhaustive. Oh, does it? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Yes, there we go. That's another one. So he's going to do that again, but it's going to be for the, the whole earth. What reference is that for it? That was James 5. 17. 17. It's interesting because the, 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 the Old Testament doesn't say that. It doesn't say. So they had some other source of that, for that information. Probably some kind of oral tradition or something. But obviously it is true because they're putting in the Word of God. So. Things now God clarifies the details in the New Testament, sometimes in the Old Testament. Yeah. 